meat, give you a discount. I'll carry you my arms if you prefer. It's I go. Don't you rickshaw guys work for tits? Is a hundred bucks enough? <coughs> Never trust a whore. <coughs> Can't you forget who's holding the aces here, pal? I'm in deep shit, Daniel. Somebody got there before me. So, but it's all very suspicious. Ah, oh, shut up! I kill for a lot less. Born June 6, 1966. Look out! Right. Comparison to the Chinese, we walk upside down. And that, my cat and I have watched over you since your birth. Welcome to the Bloody Pit uh, episode. I forget the number. My apologies. Uh, it has nothing to do with alcohol. It's more of a food-related memory problem. I am Rod Barnett. <laughs> Joining me today are two lunatics who, uh, well, one of them chose this film, and uh, the uh, the other of us just decided, you know, that's a good idea. I heartily approved it. Exactly. <laughs> Joining me is. Oh wait, I was about to call you by your real name. I really, you really cannot was. call me by my real name. My name. Bye bye. Podcast name is Bobby Hazard. Bobby Hazard joins us once again from his uh, from his bunker somewhere in an unknown place in the southeast, and uh, hunkering down trying to escape escape the heat because it's summertime, or is it? Depending on which part of parts unknown Bobby lives, <laughs> and he's never going to tell us. No. No. Yeah, you, you you guys are you guys are bagging and gagged when you come over here. That's right. It's true. But that's whether we're recording or not. <laughs> <laughs> that's because they like it. You have your sexual kink. We have ours. Also joining us is John Hudson. How you doing, Mr. Hudson? I'm doing well. Doing well. One of us decided that it would be a good idea to cover this movie. And his name I will not speak aloud, but his name is Bobby Hazard. <laughs> his name is Bobby Hazard. That was me. <laughs> now, I'm assuming that the reason you wanted to cover this film is because it has recently come out on Blu-ray, which, at least for me, was the first opportunity to actually see this movie. Yeah, or here. to even get curious about it. Yeah, it's uh, another Italian, Florida True. production. Kind of keeping in line with the stuff we've done before. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. We're never going to run out of those, as far as I can tell. And uh, it is just batshit crazy. No argument. No argument. I remember watching this film for the first time when I got it in the mail, and I was like, Rod, we have to do this. You want to know the scary thing? Okay, well, well hold on. First, John, Mr. Hudson. Yes, sir. Uh, had you ever seen this before it came out on Blu-ray? Oh, no. Oh, okay, so we're in the same boat. Yeah, Good. we're all in the same boat. Here's the weird thing. I'm watching it for the second time a few nights ago with my dear Beth. Beth had seen this movie before on television. Wow. wow. And remembered specific scenes in it. Oh, there are scenes you would never forget. Precisely. <laughs> That's for precisely. sure. And I just, I, I like stopped the movie. I paused the movie. I said, are you serious? She went, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because this is, they're about to do this, that, the other. And I went, well, my, yeah, you have seen this movie. You know what this is. Okay. <laughs> so this has obviously been broadcast somewhere in this country in, you know, in our lifetimes, which is a bit odd because I have always considered this, as soon as I learned about it, to be one of the 
odd little cul-de-sacs of weirdness that are these strange little late 80s, early 90s, Italian-financed and Italian-created uh, exploitation films. I can't call this one really a horror movie. This is it's like not. It's, not, it's not really a horror movie. It has horror movie elements, but it's not really that. But I did not know of this film's existence. And I absolutely love Sergio Martino, the man who directed this movie. Same here. Yep. Uh, I'm a huge fan of his work. I've always been impressed that he was one of those guys who uh, his career, you know, as a director, really got cranked up right, at the, right as the 70s started. And I've enjoyed, to one degree or another, every film of his I've ever seen. And he's one of those great journeyman directors who hops from genre to genre with no real sense of uh, being hampered by whatever genre he's poking around in. He's made great spaghetti westerns. He's made great giallos. He's made great horror films. He's made great post-apocalyptic films. It's impressive to note that, and I think that this was put well by um, either Cat Ellinger or Sam Deegan on the yeah. commentary track that's included on this Blu-ray, is that the, the, he's not what you would ever consider to be an auteur, but he's a, a, a journeyman director who is clearly capable of not bending him, bending a, a subject matter or a script to his own style, but, but but simply able to bring whatever script he's working with to life to a degree, to actually do a good job regardless of genre or subject matter. He seems to have been, a, he's one of those guys who just can do it. It doesn't seem to matter too much. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's most known for his giallos more than yeah. anything else. Yeah. And I mean, every single one of those just beautifully shot and amazing. I mean, Torso is absolutely one of the greatest yeah, uh, oh, freaking yeah. examples of the... Well, not to mention All the Colors of the Dark, but I always go back to uh, Torso because Torso is one of those great bridge films where you can see the giallo morphing into the slasher film. And he, oh, yeah. it, it's just... It's, it's absolutely brilliant because fans of either of those genres can find a reason to call it one or the other. Yeah, and I was trying to think the other night what was the first Martino movie that I saw. It may have been Torso. I think it was Torso for. Or it or it may have been is either that or Screamers, which was you know Isle of the Fishmen. Fish yes. Is one of those which two is a great on, movie. on home video, and I can't remember which one because it goes back a long time. But for me, my first Martino film was either Island of the Fishmen or one of his post-apocalyptic films. Mm-hmm. And I cannot because I was seeing so many, many, you know, so many movies back to back. Oh yeah, same. Uh, same. You know, you go just, to the video store and five or six exactly, just kind of absorbing them as quickly as I possibly could so I don't remember specifically but I tell you I can tell you this he was one of those guys like Lucio Lucio Fulci who I was familiar with uh, certain areas of their career and then realized oh no they spent like most of the 70s making ass-kicking thrillers and so for me with Martino he was one of those guys who I backed up chronologically with and realized yeah. oh oh shit this thing torso and all these other giallos that he made in the 70s and oh Secret Vice of Mrs. Ward and stuff like that. I, I backed up from what some might consider to be like lesser works, but I still absolutely love the post-apocalyptic stuff, really. So he's one of these guys who, as soon as I see his name attached to the film, I'm probably going to want to see it. Because even if the subject matter doesn't seem that interesting, he'll find a way to get me intrigued. He'll find a way to pull me along. Yeah, I was I was sold on Martino alone because you know Cauldron. This is one of their first two releases. Mm-hmm. They did that a newer movie called Africadabra, which I think might still be streaming on Prime. I can't remember. I tried to watch yeah, some of it. That's where I watched it. I haven't finished it, but I need to. But uh, I just remember seeing the trailer 
and just watching all this batshit stuff going on and Donald Pleasant's eating the scenery. Yep. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on, but I really have to find out. Yeah. <laughs> I want more of this, please. <laughs> now, now I'm going to say I missed the first wave of the release when it first came out. Did, did it come with a soundtrack originally or no? Do you remember? Oh, I don't I think so. I remember. I, I didn't get the first wave of this one either. I, I got not the, remember. Uh, I got the, like, the slipcover edition. I have the slipcover, yes. Yeah, the, the, the not, not the slipcover. Uh, like, well, it's a, it's yeah, a case. It's the a, case, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Like that's like a second pressing of it. Mm. Okay, but okay. I got I got probably the ass end of that because I think there's only one like option that you could buy it, and I'm like I need to get this because it's Martino and mm-hmm. I love Sergio Martino, so yeah, I got to get it. Man, what a roller coaster ride oh, yeah. that was when I got it that day. <laughs> I did not know what to expect from this film, and to be honest, I have it, it's slowly fading. I have to admit, but I have for years had what I can only refer to as a prejudice against the the Italian or European-made stuff from about the mid-'80s on. Because by the mid-'90s, it's over. Oh, yeah. It's done. I mean, it's and the thing is, by the late-'80s, it was dying. And there were fewer and fewer films getting made. It just They weren't able to compete. The, uh, the, 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 there just weren't as many films being produced. It just wasn't happening as frequently. And so there's this feeling that I've had forever is that once you, you know, once you start, if, if you start about the 60s and you get up to about 85, 86, and it's just like, you can pretty much ignore everything after that. Well, I'm learning how wrong I was. Oh. Uh, this is a, this film is a good example of me being wrong. And not that this is the first example, uh, but it is one that um, stands head and shoulders above a, a lot of others because American rickshaw people, this film and a lot of people, I think, saw it under the title American Tiger. Yeah, and in fact, in Cat Ellinger's book about Martino, yeah. that's where it's listed yeah. as American Tiger. So, uh, Regardless of the title that you see it under, whether it be uh, you know, batshit happenings in Miami, or I don't care what title you see it under, there's no way for you to really understand it until you've watched it because uh, I started counting the number of disparate elements within it. And my conservative list of things what are in this film and don't mesh or shouldn't mesh and somehow do was six. Six different things in this movie that are either inspired by some other movie or inspired by a really weird nightmare somebody had Well, after a heavy meal. I don't really know. But there are so many things that are happening in this movie and they do all eventually kind of thread themselves together in a way that isn't stupid. They all do make sense. One thing does lead to another, but it's 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 nuts that it should. Now, let's say off the bat, this was shot in Miami. It's all all of this thing is. I don't think there's a single shot in this movie, except for a couple a couple of scenes with Donald Pleasance and the uh, the older lady playing the uh, the Chinese the, the older Chinese mystical character. Madam Lou. I don't think anything else was shot on like a, a set that could have been anywhere in the world. A lot of this, if I mean, like, we're talking like eighty-five or more percent of this movie is shot on location. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. So we're talking, first of all, a really interesting look at you know nineteen eighty-eight. I'm assuming that's when they shot it, nineteen eighty-eight, eighty-nine, Miami, which is also a nice little little thing to just have in your back pocket as kind of a visual reference for what the hell was going on then. There's but, a lot of acid washing. Yes. Yes. The a fa- lot of acid wash. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's there's a conversation to be had about the fashion in this film. Oh yeah, and we should have it. <laughs> we should, well, I, and, and there's some interesting costuming choices that they they use they use kind of intelligently, I have to admit. 
But I think one of the first things that you have to, to, to take into account is that these productions that were getting shot in Florida, they were getting a deal. There was some kind of tax kickback. They, I forget exactly what the monetary situation was that allowed them to shoot a lot of this stuff that they shot in Florida and uh, Louisiana as well in the same period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but whatever it was, I am so glad it happened, and I wish it would happen again. Yeah, because it's like a lot of films tried to pull this off at the time and couldn't like, for instance, Miami Spice one and two with Amber Lynn and Barbara Dare okay. as cops. That was called, that's, a, that's a porn film. It was called Miami Spice, but yeah. I don't think a lot of it was shot on location. I mean, they're in L.A., so they could still get the sun and the beach. The sun and beach, but, yes, yes. And, they, and I'm sure that there were plenty of naked women with, you know, presenting their vaginas to the camera. It's just, am, I, am I wrong? Uh, that could be. But I was talking more about the filmmaking and the... Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> not the content so much. Like as... the scene where Randy West is lounging <laughs> around by the pool outside and the sunshine couldn't be faked. You have to be in a... And you have to be in the real sunlight. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, so there's a... You had to be in, in Florida, but I think it was Los Angeles. Remember, the sun only casts one shadow, and, and that's and that, the telltale right there. And that took me out of the film at certain points because <laughs> clearly they're calling it Miami Spice, but I don't think this is all. And in the Miami. color of the sand from California beaches yeah. and Florida beaches are two different things. It's not quite yeah. the same. Yeah. Yeah. Those aren't the same. And let's admit, sun rises in the east, sets in the west. True enough. And you're going to figure that out eventually. <laughs> That was a good movie. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> oh, my Don't God. Don't you love doing podcasts with us, Rod? Not with Hudson, though. <laughs> no, never with Hudson. But, so, but see, you get the double team now. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Y'all, you, you guys have never thought this through. There should be a good cop and a bad cop. And it's just... Bad, in, cop, bad cop and highly amused cop. Well, that's I can, all uh, I'm getting here. Well, well, that's just like in Miami Spice. There's a scene where Randy West is by the <laughs> pool, and Amber Lynn is the, she's the naughty cop. Oh, is she? Not? And Barbara Dare is the good cop who says, "What are you talking about? He's did you a, did you he, watch the wrong movie? For he's a spot? suspect. What are you doing?" But then eventually. Within three or four minutes, Barbara Dare is also a naughty cop. <laughs> ah, yes. How, and I'm, I'm sure we're defining naughty cop in a, a very specific way. But. She's just naughty. <laughs> yes. Now, see, aren't you glad we didn't bring up Grunt the Wrestling Movie? Uh, there's uh, still see, time. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. You just did. So, <laughs> I know. Wait, I didn't mention Grunt the Wrestling Movie. It was Bobby who mentioned Grunt the yes. Wrestling Movie. <laughs> yes, we may is. never talk about Grunt the Wrestling Movie again today. This might be the last time you hear us say Grunt the Wrestling Movie. <laughs> there is no God. <laughs> and now, let us advance to this fucking movie. American Rickshaw. So, it being one of these Italian productions in the late 80s, I had completely ignored this stuff. This, this was stupid of me. It's only in the past three or four years that I've realized how stupid a move that was on my part. Because anytime one of them kind of gets dropped into my lap whether it's through a new Blu-ray release or, or whatever it may be, I realized, oh, man, I really enjoyed this. Uh, I remember the first one that really kind of opened my eyes is not something that's even been released commercially over here, I don't think. It's a film called Body Count, which is a very late-in-the-cycle 80s uh, slasher film, um, uh, Italian-made. I'm trying to remember who directed it now, and I can't because, of course, I have a crappy memory at this point. But that was so late in the 80s, and I really enjoyed it. It's a it's a backwoods slasher movie, and I thought, wow, this is really this is this is fire on all cylinders. I enjoyed this. I mean, it's it's trashy, it's fun, it's entertaining from beginning to end. And then I just ignored that until 
we started getting this wave of stuff like Nightmare Beach that started coming out on Blu-ray, and I'm starting to pay attention and going, okay, that's 88. I think body count was like 87. This movie's 89. It's like, well, my, my little rule about once you get to the mid-80s, it's all over for this kind of stuff, turns out to be bullshit. I don't mind it being bullshit. That means there's more cool movies for me to see. There is a lot of sketchiness, I think, after the 80s involving horror movies. Yeah. But I think we're still kind of right at the end where it's like, eh, this is still okay. Yeah. At least, you know, from my memory of the 80s, it's when you get into the 90s where things are just like, I, I have a aversion to modern horror movies. Usually with a modern horror film, I'm like, oh, it's going to suck, isn't it? Well, see, to me, it's not the it's not the it's that the horror movie changes, that fewer, fewer horror movies were being made, and the money that would have been made that would have been put into productions of horror movies in the 90s suddenly got shifted into the erotic thriller. Skinamax movies. That's where the money went. So fewer movies being made, less dollars to go around. You're looking, you're a producer. You're not a, you're not a filmmaker. You don't give a shit. You're looking to do this because you're trying to make money. And after basic instinct was a giant hit, everybody was like, we want to do a hundred thousand of those. And that's where all the money went. So that I think is a big contributor to, the horror genre, as a, in general, just kind of drying the fuck up. For years there, horror movies were few and far between, and they certainly weren't going into the theaters. If you saw them, they were direct-to-video, or they got they got play in the big cities, and that was it. Mm-hmm. As with a lot of exploitation films made by Italians <laughs> forever, <laughs> there's, there's a, of course, a, Sergio Martino's name is not on this film, at least not as director. His name is credited in the uh, in the in the list of people for the screen for the screenplay, uh, but uh, it's directed by somebody else. It's weird, huh? Might be a fake name. As a matter of fact, I know it's a fake name. So Martin Dolman. Yes, which was a pseudonym he used several times. Uh, he has a list of like six pseudonyms that he used, depending on the territory or the country. Uh, you know, we got we got to make people think this is an American production. We shot it in Miami. Come on, people, you know it's real. Yeah. So before we move forward, I just want to note that there was two people. Uh, no, actually five people involved with the story. Yes. Of this movie, that's a lot of damn people, and, and they never met. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. Well, the thing is, uh, Sergio Martino first got into the industry in the first place doing script rewrites, reading scripts and doing rewrites on them, and sometimes during production. And he did he did a little bit of that on most of his script, most of his scripts, no matter what he did anyway. And also, if you've seen any, any any interviews with him talking about this movie or any other movie, he was highly collaborative. He liked he liked uh, he liked his actors to be able to imp- improvise things. If there was a problem, he liked them to be, you know, flexible enough to be able to come up with something on the fly, or if they had a better idea, if they needed to change the way something was on the page so that it sounded better. He was good with it. So him being one of the, the script writers may just boil down to him doing like a finished a finished polish on the thing and then rewriting a couple things as they went. And as we get toward the end of the, the movie, we'll discuss an entire sequence that they had to completely redo in the first place because their original plan was not going to work. But one of the people who worked on the screenplay, uh, apparently, heavily worked on the screenplay is the same guy responsible for writing Santa Sangre for really for for, for Hodorowski the same oh. year. Now that's very interesting. Wow. Is it I not thought. exactly? I mean, as a matter of fact, that guy. You look at that guy's credits, and in the space of about a year and a half, he had three different films come out, and uh, it's it's a real it's a real tough call on which one was weirder. <laughs> <laughs> 
And Santa Sangre is the most accessible of all Joe Raskin's films, too. Yeah, and just a great movie all the way around. But yeah, same guy, same guy. I just got the 4K of that recently, and I hadn't seen it in a long time. I'd forgotten how amazing that movie actually is. Great I mean, stuff. I'm, I'm a big Joe Raskin film fan yeah. to begin with. But man, wow, it's such a, such a great film. Yep, and believe it or not, there's a creative element behind the camera involved in this movie as well, which might give you a hint as to just how nuts this thing is. Because <laughs> if you enter this movie and your first question of, uh, of note would be, there are rickshaw drivers in Miami? Dude, that's just, that's not even like your first layer of weirdness in this damn movie. Yeah, you if got you have ex- a problem with that, yeah. then you need to stop immediately. <laughs> it's like, first of all, whether they actually are or not, the movie sells it pretty effectively. It's fine because the the way they shoot it, the way they they set up the whole rickshaw thing, the the guys they have playing the other rickshaw drivers, it's completely believable even if they've never existed once in Miami. Now I'm going to say this, Austin, we had rickshaw and pedicab drivers. Hmm. The rickshaw guys are very short-lived because they work for a club called Bob Popular which changed names a few times when I was there. It was very hilarious to watch these jocks like running down the road carrying people. Yeah. One time I saw a guy running down the South Congress Bridge, which was miles away from Bob Popular. He must have got paid something by somebody to run him down to South Congress. I'm like, oh my God, this guy is insane. Cause, you know, yeah, yeah, that's he's, he's got a job. cart picked up and he's running down the South Congress Bridge like a main road oh <laughs> at three God. o'clock in the morning. Hey, I did have a bandmate that was a pedicab driver, and those are all over uh, downtown, probably still to this day. Wow, I didn't know that. Uh, my buddy, uh, Dirty Steve, who I used to be in a band called the Pink Swords. Um, actually, I started in that band 20 years ago. Um, You're old. Yeah, I am old. And if you keep giving hints, <laughs> if you keep giving hints that broad, man, people are going to figure out who you are. Oh, they know. <laughs> I'm, just trying to, I'm just trying to have a veiled... Anonymity. Look, we all knew it was Hulk Hogan under that Mr. America mask. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, uh, let's let's get. Dusty Rhodes was a Midnight Rider. We all knew it. Oh, let's. Oh. I just I just want to to finish the the pedicab story oh, yeah. real quick. Sorry, don't want to keep you too lo- uh, keep you too far away from uh, the movie, but uh, it's just funny because uh, <laughs> we'll Steve, get to it Steve, who I still love to death this day, is one of my oldest friends from Austin. Um, he was in the height of his uh, machismo, and he loved doing it because he could pick up on girls. And he's gotten tipped in cocaine a few times. Oh my god! And girls flashing his, him boobs when they're drunk. So he had that job for years and loved it. He thought it was the best thing ever. <laughs> no kidding. And I just always laughed at him, like, no way. <laughs> that's, that's that's very very similar to a rickshaw thing, though. I was about I, that's just a stunted adolescence. I mean, that's just a refusal to move on to adulthood. That's insane. Oh, I mean, that would, I, that don't was get me wrong. It's not, it's not like I you, you'd look at my office and think that I wasn't a, a, some kind of stunted childhood lunatic myself. But. I was just going to say, as far as moving on to adulthood, have you not listened to the last few minutes of our own conversations here? <laughs> okay, fair, yes, fair point. Fair point. Yes. Hey, he lives in New York, has a family, and and runs a record store, so he's no longer a pedicab driver. <laughs> he's he he's grown up. It's something that sadly we all must do eventually, unless. You're Mitch Gaylord. <laughs> Let's oh. talk about this. Mitch Gaylord, the star of this movie, was an Olympic gymnast and an incredible athlete. Let's let's not beat around the bush. The man got a perfect 10 in the 1984 Olympics. That's unheard of. That's insane. And we, we have to say that he has uh, two signature moves that only he created. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. The Gaylord Flip and the Gaylord 2, which to me is absolutely hilarious because I'm five years old. But <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if, you see, if you see him do that, if you look at the video footage, you look at it and you go, my God, that's amazing. Oh, he was the real deal. And I'll say, and I've, I've racked my brain to try and remember, but I know that when I was in college in the 80s, there were at least two girls that I knew who had Mitch Gaylord posters. Oh, nice. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was, and I cannot remember who they were or where I saw them. It's not like I was hanging out in a lot of girls' dorm rooms. You know, that not... At least not by invitation. <laughs> but but I remember seeing those posters and um, so Vision, he, visions of you on a panty raider now yeah. filtrating my head. They were I mean you could buy posters of him at you know Kmart or somewhere. Yeah. Oh yeah. So he was he was pretty popular at the time. Well, I mean I think with the here's the thing, if he had played his cards right or if he'd wanted to play his cards right because it seems like maybe he didn't want this. This movie could have been pushed into the realm of it because he'd already done a movie before this called American Anthem, which was a big release. I think that's Huge where a lot release. of the posters came from. Don't forget about Jim Cotta. Now, well, see, that's I was going to bring that up later. If he, had, <laughs> if he had wanted to, if he wanted for this to be his Jim Cotta, the thing that rocketed had, Kurt Thomas to. <laughs> well, listen, let, let's just say turned Kurt Thomas into a household joke. <laughs> Because that's, that's what Jim Cotta is to this day. That's a good movie, man. I'm not saying it's not a good movie. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> what on. I'm saying is... I never saw it. Well, oh, it's, it's worth saying. I've got the Blu-ray, so the next time we get together... <laughs> Jim, Cotta, Jim Cotta is, a, 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 at the very least, a great one-time watch. One that you kind of need to see. Because, A, the, the, the number of times you go, what the fuck... <laughs> If it's above it, if it's above a three, you're a normal human being. If it's under ten, you're not paying enough attention to the film. It's insane. But this movie, the way it's constructed, the way the plot is laid out, could have been another attempt at a Jim Cotta. Let's turn a gymnast into a movie star or an action star, which is what Jim Cotta really was attempting to do. Let's try that. But I wonder if at this point enough years had gone by, in other words, three or four, where people realize, you know, Jim Cotta didn't do anybody any good. <laughs> so maybe we shouldn't lean in that direction. Yeah, which and, and to their credit, yeah, they absolutely don't. And they could have at least done a thing where he does a flip off something in a fight scene or something. Well, but there's I would argue that the there are only two scenes where you see the the real well, two or three, where you really see the physicality that Mitch Gaylord was capable of. Yeah, like in the uh, parking garage. Yes. And Where it's almost kind of, you know, a couple of, you know, like a decade before parkour, you're seeing him do some stuff that would be that. I mean, and it's pretty impressive, and it's actually him. And also, that uh, that fist fight on the boat mm -hmm. is, is pretty damn well done and freaking believable. I have to say, it's a well-done fist fight. But opportunities for more things of that nature are all over this movie. You would but, never know he's a gymnast. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, they really wouldn't. You would, think you would just think he's an athletic guy. That's yeah. it. That's all. So. And I think he could. I don't know what happened, but he certainly could have had a career as a B-movie star. I mean, he's yeah. a good-looking guy. Decent enough actor. He, he's, he's, he's not he's bad. Yeah. Nothing nothing and, wrong with him. He could, have, he could have certainly done plenty of direct-to-video movies in the 90s. Yeah, and I think he only, did, he only did a couple more after this, and they were kind of in the realm of the erotic thriller mm -hmm. stuff. And then after that, he just started doing some behind-the-scenes, some stunt work. Uh, my, my understanding is he played a character in the Mortal Kombat movie in 95, but he's in Behind the Mask. 
So he's a, it's essentially a stuntman role. So uh, and then he did some stunts on one of the Batman movies, I mm-hmm. think. So it, it, you get to the point where you're like, okay, well, either he didn't want it or the opportunities weren't being offered to him. But regardless, he's actually pretty good in this movie. As the movie goes on, as the, his character gets more desperate, he's actually more believable as an actor. The more sweaty and confused and unshaven he becomes, the more it feels like this guy is actually pretty good at doing this stuff on screen. That pretty much is his character to a T. Sweaty, unshaved, and confused. Yeah. yeah that's, that's, <laughs> that's, him, him. that's him for about an hour of this movie. <laughs> He's like, what the hell is happening to me? So we should also talk about the two, the two other actors that really oh, make yeah. this oh, yeah. movie. One, we have uh, Reverend Mortem, which is Donald Pleasance. Any idea why in the world it wasn't just Morton instead of Mortem? I mean, is there some kind of like Variation on the word of, you know, like the, the Latin word for death that we're That's the only thing there. I can figure because I don't remember any popular televangelist named Morton that who, where they might think, oh, we don't want them to sue yeah, us. Yeah. And maybe there was one somewhere, but I, so I don't know. Mortem is a name where nobody else has it. So it may have been play on the death and also they know that nobody's going to sue them. Very possibly. Very so possible. one thing I was wondering just because of Donald Pleasant's access or uh, access. Donald Pleasant's accent. Oh, I knew this was mean, coming. You mean <laughs> his deep south crossed with uh, cr- crossed with Cockney? He's, <laughs> he's, the, he's the most British Southern person I've ever seen in my life. But part of me, part of me, all, almost imagines that he was drunk during the entire. thing. That's what he comes across. Yeah, it does. Like, you're not trying well, to do southern accent. You're just plowed. This, <laughs> <laughs> this is that period of time where Donald Pleasance was was taking just about anything that was offered to him. I don't know that he. I don't know that he necessarily needed the money. I think that he realized, you know, I can just stay in America and make lots of money playing in these little bit roles. I mean, because I don't know. I mean, his time on screen probably took him about a week to shoot. It was probably about five or six days. I was guessing two or three days. Yeah. Most it, of this, it, well, it could have been squeezed, but I keep thinking about the the number of different places. All this stuff could conceivably have been shot on sets. So that would make it easier to to put it all together, but you know, there's the all the stuff with the the Chinese lady. There's the the, the weird ass makeup and costuming for the uh, the quote unquote scene when he's younger. But he's not. But but but, but it's him. Some of those shots are him, and he's got that green makeup on his face and all that. So I keep thinking about it. I'm like, he was there for a few days. I mean, this is not a one day job. He's there for a little while. Oh, definitely not a one day. Yeah, yeah. I'll agree with that. But it's one of those things where it's just like you know. Donald Pleasance, he'd come in and do this. Every other line sounds like he's actually from the South. It's not every line, that's well, for sure. <laughs> it reminded me of the time that I saw um, Escape from New York in the theater. Yes. And it was my dad, and I think, I hope I don't sound racist when I tell this story, but it was my dad and probably about a dozen African-American guys. Right. And it was a great audience to see Escape from New York. Oh, I bet. And we're sitting next to this guy, and Donald Pleasance is chewing up the scenery. And this guy leans over to my dad and says, is he supposed to be the president? And my dad says, yeah. And he says, man, nobody ever vote for that pussy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, that. Okay, that is oh, perfect. That. Oh. To be there and to be able to shake that man's hand. I know. Yes. It was such yes. a great audience. Very rowdy and into it. It was great. Oh, oh I wish I'd have been there for that. Yes. Oh, that would have been so great. That would have been perfect. Oh, my Lord. Let's also talk about 
Francis. Oh, Daniel well, Green. Daniel Green, who, for me, first of all, I expect Donald Pleasance to entertain me. Okay? Yeah, I see his name in the credits. I don't give a shit what the movie is. I don't care what the subject matter is. Donald Pleasance is going to keep my eyes on the screen. Mm-hmm. I did not expect, especially on a second and third viewing, to really kind of come away impressed with this Daniel Green guy. When you look at his credits, you realize, oh, okay, this guy worked for a long time. He did an entire season of Falcon Crest. So there's just absolutely no way that you do a season of 20-plus episodes of a TV series with professionals and not learn how to do this shit. And then you look at... He, he, he worked with Sergio Martino on three other movies. Hands of Steel, the, the most known one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the what, uh, darn, the one that's kind of a Rocky ripoff, but isn't really a Rocky rip- oh, ripoff the called the, the Opponent. The Opponent. That's why I, I was going to spell it the haven't seen, haven't seen it yet, but that's another late 80s Italian exploitation film that I suddenly is now on my list. I've got to see this movie. Somebody's right? going to have to release that soon. I mean, there's all these boutique Blu-ray labels that are digging nice. into the Italian cinema. That's got to be coming. But I look at this and I'm like, I actually enjoyed watching him as this murderous cult member going around <laughs> often the fuckers who are in the way. I, I like him, but at the same time, he is the dorkiest looking mean killer you've ever seen in your mm-hmm. life. Like with that weird looking goatee that yep, looks yep. like he just grew it out and that bad haircut. Well, the haircut. The, He's what, got a bullet. So what would have sold it, though? Is he needed a ponytail? Every bad guy in the nineties, yes, ah. late eighties, had to be a big guy in a suit with a ponytail. You're right. That's what and he we're was gonna, missing. We're You're gonna right. take it back around, just like the one guy, the scientist from Primal Rage. Ooh, <laughs> yes, exactly. If he had just had that little shitty ponytail, yes, <laughs> ah, that would have been that would have been the best. But he did have those black Reeboks. He did. <laughs> yes, he did. Which was truly, honestly. That's what I'd have been wearing in the '89 if I needed to be getting around Miami to kill people. Mm-hmm. No, I'm, I'm going to agree with that. <laughs> I mean, what 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 better shoes? Let's be blunt. Part of me because 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 of the line I, I wrote down. Part of me wants to call him Angry Porn Man. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll just refer to him as that from now on because it just seems so so apropos for uh, yeah. Yeah. What he is. Right. Well, the thing is, though, he's 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 good in the role. He is uh, good. It is weird to know that he was like the romantic guy, the romantic lead in the first Elvira movie. I totally forgot about that. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I say, yeah. you start looking at this guy's list of credits, and you're like, well, no wonder this guy is believable on screen. He was doing this for uh, for like a decade before he made this movie, and and like I say, you don't make a season of television in the '80s and not. You know, like get yeah. beat up by everybody to make sure you're doing it right. You yeah, know, you, yeah, like, and in the '90s as well, because like Thunder in Paradise with Hulk Hogan, <laughs> hey, he knows how to hit his mark. That's 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 the thing. That's the that's the joke Kurt Russell always had about he was a he was a child actor working for Disney. And he says it puts you. He says it, it teaches you exactly everything you need to know that you can't build that that you can build on, which is. You learn how to hit your mark and say your lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, in other words, you learn the most basic end of it, and whatever you bring to it will tell you just how far you're going to go. And this guy's learned it, and I was kind of surprised by how much I enjoyed his performance in this. No, he's awesome. Yeah. He's a good villain. You actually do root against him. You yeah. Know, you find yourself caring that. Oh man, I hope this guy doesn't. But nothing he, good can happen to this guy. And he's so. And it's fascinating to watch him because he's. He's a nasty bastard. Yeah. But he's also the most dynamic character on the screen. So you can't take your eyes off of him. It's kind of amazing. So uh, old Madame Lau, which is Michi Kobe. 
Yes. Really the most notable film that I recognize that she was in was Tokyo After Dark. Yes, well, I actually know her from a little science fiction movie called, uh, what, 12 to the Moon. Oh, okay. Which is a little 50 science fiction movie, black and white movie that, oddly enough, I have on DVD because it was put out as a collection, you know, as part of a, like a six film science fiction mm-hmm. from the 50s collection. And uh, we were we were watching it the other night and Beth looks real quick and goes, because she was like, well, she's actually really good at this. She's actually a good actress. And she like looks back and she goes, she was in something called 12 to the Moon? And I went, I know that movie. I have it on DVD upstairs. She goes, of course you do. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't recognize that. No, no, I did the book. I did not recognize a lot of the movies that she was in. Yeah, I just wrote down the one I was familiar with. But uh, she's been in a lot of stuff. So she is. She is a a well versed actor, and she's really good. In fact, yeah, she is. The opening of the film, um, which is a, a beautiful sequence with the rain and and. Uh, I keep wanting to call him Jeff Gaylord, the Missouri Tiger, who is a local wrestler. Oh, but it was Mitch Gaylord, where he comes up in the rickshaw and it's raining and she's waiting for the ride. And, and her, just her face kind of tells yeah. this nice little story. And, and, and it's it does, really, yes. She's really it's, good. It's, it's really effective visual storytelling because there's absolutely no dialogue. You, mm-hmm. learn, you learn everything you need to from her reactions to what's happening. And it's just, it's 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 well done. And uh, it, it didn't even feel weird because it's the start of the movie that Sergio Martino, for some reason, is shooting it in slow motion. It's like, why are we doing this? I don't understand why mm-hmm. this is in slow motion. But at the same time, it's probably because he's, he's getting all this, he's getting all these shots in the, of the bright sunlight and the fake rain, and it looks yeah. good. So, <laughs> Well, uh, here, here's a good place to put in this Cat Ellinger quote that I thought was pretty apropos for this movie. She goes, you know, for a movie that's supposed to be low budget, the way it's shot, it does not feel like a low budget. Film. No, it really does. No, it does, no, it does not. not. And that's the thing is, like, it, no, no matter what you think of the movie, you look at the shots and how they're set up; they're all really well done. Think about the dynamism of some of the shots as well. There are a lot of shots where he has t- he's taking the time. His his shot sets set up aren't aren't the shots aren't just interestingly set up as in. A shot that's going to be on screen for less than fifteen seconds. He's got the camera right near the ground, and which is which is interesting because it adds a different a different thing and it changes up the way you're looking at things. But also, he chooses that angle of being close to the ground to track along behind a couple of characters for a shot that's like I say, less than ten seconds long on screen. Which means, well, that took some time. He took the time to do that because he wanted to change up the way things are looking because he's a veteran director and he knows yeah. that if you shoot every everything flat at chest to nose level over and over and over again, your brain just starts to get bored. You yeah. just start to not care anymore no, and you and you just start to, your, 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 your attention wanders. He knows that if you change up your shots and if you put the camera, you rack the camera down uh, down near the knees and then slowly rotate it up as, as the, the scene goes on, as you move the camera, that engages you visually. Yes. It engages the way you're paying attention to the things. It keeps you looking at the screen because he's not doing the same Static setup shot. every yeah. time he's doing it. And so there's a lot of that in the movie. The more you pay attention, the more you're like, oh, he didn't need to do that. That's just cool. So when we actually get into the plot, there's a couple things I want to go over in that scene. Just want to put that out there. Okay. Right well, let's head that but, way. Uh, We're at the beginning. Well, I, I just want to make another couple of references to uh, uh, actors real quick. So one of the other leads... Yeah. Victoria Prouty, the the romantic, well, the later romantic interest. Yeah. Only in one other movie. True. She was a she was a model. She was a model. Yeah. She's only in a movie called Men. 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 That's it. And I'm betting she was nude in a lot of that movie as well. <laughs> uh, 
Also, uh, the lady that played Sarah Mortem, Judy Clayton, she was an Ace Ventura pet, pet detective. <laughs> uh, the, the, well, that means she's a Florida actress, I bet. Lieutenant Morgan, uh, Roger Preto, was in Superboy, Cape Fear, and New York Undercover. And then, uh, I can't remember who Mary Jo is, but she was in uh, Tales from the Crypt, Demon Knight, No Retreat, No Surrender 3, <laughs> which I didn't even know there was one. There was a third? Yeah. Killer Crocodile. Oh, yes. Which is a Serge Martino yeah. movie. And well, wait, a minute, wait, is that Killer Crocodile? Because there's Great there's Great River or the, the the Great Alligator or Alligator, but there's another movie called Killer Crocodile. Actually, you know what? Uh, I think Killer Crocodile is not Sergio Martino. Now think yeah, about it, because yeah, I'm yeah. looking at the cover and I know it's not because it was put out by Severin. Yeah. Uh, and then there's another movie, and I actually want to find out more about this because it looks like a foreign made uh, a U.S. film called Psy Warrior. Psy Warrior. I know nothing about it, but I want sounds to find out. To me. It sounds yeah. good. Yeah, and that was the uh, the roommate. Um, of of our lead character. Oh Mary no no, no, no that's Mary Joe. No no no, that's a different character. That, that, that's a different actor entirely. He and that, another another guy you're talking about because he's shirtless a lot of the time. Yeah, he's a he's a. He's no no a, no, not the guy's roommate. But remember the stripper's roommate. It's probably yes, yeah, it's, it's oh, Mary Joe's her roommate. You're right. Yeah, okay, I never sorry, got yes. the name. That's yeah. right. It never clicked in my head that her roommate was Mary Joe. Thank you. Yeah, you're correct. You're correct. Um, and also musically, it seems like we always have some kind of music, being some kind of special music thing done for every episode I've done. <laughs> Not really a special this time. You got Luciano Michelini. Really, the only things he's done is that's of note is Suspicious Death of a Minor, which is a Martino film. And yeah, he did the couple. Screamers, which is also another Martino film. Which Island that's, of the Fishman. That's Island of the Fishman. Yeah, yeah. that he he seems to have been. Uh, and I think actually, if if memory serves, it's his his name is given as the man as the person who's responsible for the score, and also isn't the Cam Music Library. Uh, listed underneath his name as well, which means I think he may have sourced some music from the Cam Library as I, well. I wouldn't doubt it. Um, I'll be honest, I did not go through the credits on this one just because I was just <laughs> like, oh, it's one guy, whatever. Well, here's the thing. Uh, this movie, as I said before, does have at least six different things going on all at the same time. And uh, just because there's not a lot written about uh, the movie itself, I actually watched some reviews so I just get a feel for what other people are thinking about it. Yeah. Hopefully not trying to steal their jokes. I may have to steal one. <laughs> but I'll, I'll credit. I'll give credit where credit is Always due. give credit. Yes. Uh, a, a bunch of different people said that this movie was like trying to rip up Big Trouble, Little China, and Golden Child. Maybe so. And having uh, a little, little bit. Yeah. I could, I could see it. Uh, I only, here's a, here's an aside. I only recently finally watched The Golden Child, and I have to agree with Eddie Murphy. That's a piece of shit. I've never seen it. Don't. You're, you're, you'll you'll. I can tell you exactly. I don't know if anybody else. I've not done any reading on the reaction to this film or at the time or. It was a hit since. at the time, but well, yeah. Eddie Murphy could do anything. I can, I can tell you right now how The Golden Child got made. The movie he made right before that was such a gigantic hit. Its name was Beverly Hills Cop. And everybody now knows the story of Beverly Hills Cop being originally a straight script that was going to be that was going to star Sylvester Stallone, and they took that script, and they just had Eddie Murphy, Eddie Murphy the fucking story. In other words, there's areas in the story where you have to get from point A to point B in the plot, and they just let Eddie Murphy and a, and and a couple of other writers come up with a way to get from A to B in a funny quote unquote funny way. And that's how they made Beverly Hills Cop into a comedy as opposed to a Stallone movie. That's exactly what I think they were trying to do with The Golden Child. I think The Golden Child was written as a straight supernatural adventure thing. And they were just like, we'll just have Eddie do the same thing. 
And it didn't work. And it does not work. There's some funny stuff in it, don't get me wrong. But it's very easy to see that's all they were doing. It's like, oh, we can just do this again. We'll take a straight script, stick Eddie Murphy in it, he'll Eddie Murphy it up, and bingo, 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 huge hit. Mm-hmm. Oh, and uh, Killer Crocodile was directed by, it looks like, two people. Uh-oh. Fabrizio D'Angelis. <laughs> that's right. Giannetto De Rossi. Yes, indeed. Because one person, it took more than one person to get that one done. Well, Killer Crocodile is insane. If you've never seen it, you need to see it. Yeah, I, I get I get them mixed up because Great Alligator and Killer Crocodile are such similar names. Yeah, that yes. yeah. Uh, They're both great movies, though. Mm. I really, I, I really like Great Alligator. Great Alligator, but then I love Sergio Martino. Yeah. Well, how can you not? Exactly. not the ordinary way that is not a fucking confucius quote no it is not <laughs> yeah that's about as confucius as he who eat jelly bean throw up in technicolor <laughs> chocolate bunny composed of thing it wish it were not yeah. confucius Confu- yeah, yeah. 1962 Confu- yeah. confucius seven seventy two bc no wait, i don't think they had chocolate bunnies then so no. That's it. That's your. That, what was it? What was it? The the endless memes of quotes about uh, you know cursing out your cell phone uh, attributed to Abraham Lincoln. So, not true. I need to, I need to make up my own Confucius quotes. I, you, you can do it. You should have them. We should we should all have. We should make up a Confucius quote. Have it uh, have it knitted and and then hang them on the walls and see how many people think one or the other of them is actually a Confucius quote. <laughs> We'd have a little contest over the year. American Rickshaw or American Tiger. Let's get a few things out of the way. This movie is crazed and it still works. It's completely nuts. It's, it's composed of elements that should not fit together into the same story and yet, somehow, it works. I don't know how. It's the magic of movie making, people. And that does not always work for big, big budget movies when you try to throw shit against the wall to see what sticks. No, nope. this movie it works. It this does. movie it does work. Our main character, played by Mitch Gaylord, is Scott Edwards. That's the uh, Olympic gymnast guy we were talking about earlier. He is a Miami college student who pulls a rickshaw for a living. 
He has a roommate named Daniel, and he's a rickshaw driver too, but the entire movie, he's just down because he broke his leg because he was a drunken dipshit one night when he was working. Sounds about right for that line of work. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He got tipped in cocaine one night. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there is a question that we'll get to about whether or not these rickshaw guys aren't doing this job and pimping on, or, or shall we say, uh, hooking on the side. So, one day Scott gives a ride to an old Chinese lady, uh, that would be uh, Michi Kobe, who is so impressed that she, she subsequently tracks down his name and his home address to write him a letter. And as we see him start to read this letter one day when, he's, when he comes home from school, it sounds like it's going to be a really interesting letter. And then he drops it and then never, ever finishes reading the fucking letter. And it comes in the same day that he gets this obvious ancient Chinese artifact. Yes, but I, think, I think it looks like a butt plug. Yeah. Well, it's an ancient Chinese butt plug. <laughs> an ancient Chinese butt plug. There but it, his curiosity never goes back. Like, well, gosh, maybe that letter might explain this. And then, like, the box, it comes to this very ornate cardboard. Yep. It just throws that away throws immediately. That away. It's like, you know, if I get random ancient artifacts in the mail that I know nothing about, I might want to see what the instruction manual is. <laughs> Already clueless, but not uh, unshaven and sweaty yet. Yeah, not yet. Not yet. But what I love is that the movie repeatedly shows us, as days go by in the story, this letter sitting in the next to the trash bin in his apartment complex, being chewed on by rats, as if we're going to eventually come back to this fucking letter and him pick it up and try to discern anything or a message or anything. But it never happens. And it's one of those things where it shouldn't make me happy, but it does. <laughs> why is the le- why do we keep going back to the letter considering that he eventually gets all the information he needs by just going and talking to the lady in the first place? Well, it's all like the uh, the uh, ancient artifact, which he never really does anything with. He sticks it in a drawer and leaves it there, <laughs> and then eventually he like he eventually spoiler, he completes his mission and it falls apart. Yeah, but it crumbles what, to dust. Yeah. What did he do with? He never touched. He the, never got to put it up his butt. He never got to do thing. anything with it. Yeah, I mean, he's just putting it in a drawer for like, well, I'll just save this for later. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you never know when you might need a good Chinese butt plug. <laughs> we need more Calgon. <laughs> Ancient Chinese butt plug. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, so... <laughs> Well, I love that the reason, by the way, the reason he drops the letter is because of his horny neighbor, the housewife, who he clearly banged a couple of times and she's trying to to get him to, she's trying to entice him into having sex with him again, while her husband at home down the hall yelling out the hallway to her. Like, dear, you need to really, really time these, these assignations with younger men a lot better than this. You might, you don't know, he might be a cuck. That's true. Never came. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. You're right. We never meet the guy, so who knows? Yeah. He didn't sound like he would be into it, but you never know. It could have all be a game. <laughs> well, uh, sometime later, okay, we're, we're introduced to... you got to understand, people. This movie, it's very smoothly put together, but it's introducing so many different characters and in so many different uh, places around Miami that... It's impossible to kind of verbally tell you this before because by the time I start telling you about the gorgeous red-headed stripper, I have to tell you, oh, by the way, we were introduced to the gorgeous red-headed stripper at the stripper club she works at where we're introduced to her talking to a guy who at the very beginning of the movie 
we saw putting this bizarre Jade Moore statuette thing into a locker in a, is it a bus station? It looks like bus, uh, bus station. station. Yeah. No, train station. Train, train station. station. It's train station. So that's, oh, that's right, because the tracks that he goes yeah, Oh, you're yeah. right. It's a train station. So this is, like I said, we've already got so many elements that just by starting telling you about the main character, we've skipped the Moore monster statue that is being hidden by this guy with, with only one thumb to begin with. So we got that mystery character. We see him talking to the redheaded stripper. And then the redheaded stripper by the name of Joanna, shows up out of the blue at the rickshaw pavilion place, whatever we're going to call it. I just want to say, it's not suspicious that she showed up in a cab right. to get a ride from a pedicab. Yeah, gets out. And and says, or, 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 excuse me, not a pedicab, but a, a rickshaw Which, driver. So I'm taking a cab to get another ride from somebody else. How would you not look at that and go, that's weird? No, no, no. That's what makes me think these guys are gigolos. <laughs> That she's come there to scout which one of these men she wants to take her back to wherever she's going to have sex. Well, but the, you look at that woman and you go, she doesn't need to pay anybody to have sex yes. with her. So what the hell is happening here? You know the uh, the, the only way you get a hint of any of that happening is the uh, the gay rickshaw guy. Yes, yes, kind of gives it away that he's had sex yeah. with people he's given yeah. rides to. Which is, like I say, and Mitch Gaylord, she uh, she goes straight to Mitch Gaylord's character, hires him to take her someplace, which it turns out to be a yacht, entices him inside, and he's not too reluctant. I mean, he shows, he, he does, you know, kind of resist for about 0.2 seconds. Yeah, he does the thing where he looks around and see everybody's looking and they're yeah. like, okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> I guess. And then goes inside, and it's like, like I say, that's what the, the that's not a thread that gets tugged on, like where, where, where we learn really concretely whether or not these rickshaw guys have this, you know, have this thing to the side where they're like, sometimes we get paid to have sex with women too, or sometimes we get paid to have sex with men, depending on your your willingness to do such things. Also, just want to say, stripper that quote unquote doing the air quotes here that lives on a boat. That's not suspicious at all. <laughs> yeah. Not one bit. Well, for us, we know she's a stripper. Mitch's character doesn't know she's a stripper. That's true. That's, that's true. true. So that's that's and that's it's not her boat, so Yeah, it doesn't so definitely turns out he doesn't know that boat. either. So that yep. makes sense. He just thinks it's beautiful woman on a boat. Uh, okay, that could But see here's the thing. It I looked at that I mean, you look at where that yacht is, and there are other yachts there tied up as well at that dock area. There's a part of me that goes, Wow, would it be somebody's kink to just go and walk onto a yacht where nobody's home and have sex in their yacht. And I can see that being a thing. I can see that being something that people would do. And that's how the rapper Lil Yachty got his name. Uh, what? (laughs) (laughs) I don't don't want to sound clueless about pop culture, but what, but the fuck? Yeah, Lil Yachty. I think that's how he got his name. Ah, yes. See, I'm not going to stop the show now and Google this (laughs) <laughs> to determine whether or not you're feeding me a line of shit, I'm just going to assume you are. No, so I did want I did want to back up for a second on a plot point about yeah. uh, Mr. Gaylord's character. He says he was born in 1966. Was the year of the tiger? It is not, not the year of the tiger. No, it is not. It's the year of the Gaylord. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I was waiting for that. <laughs> um, 
It's the year of the pink sword. No. <laughs> uh, well, I was born in 74. So. <laughs> Actually, 74 is the year of the tiger. I found that out from a girl I used to date ah. a million years ago. But the only year of the tiger in the 60s was 1962. So uh, what was 1966? That I don't know because I didn't look that far. The, the, year, the year of, of the, the Gaylord. The year of, it was the year of the porcupine. I only say that because it's the dumbest thing I can think of right now. The year of the porky pig. <laughs> the year of the porky pig. The year of the guys that just wear shirt and no pants and underwear. God. Okay, 1966 was the year of the horse, or oh. it's also called the year of the fire horse. Year of the horse. <laughs> That's right. Ooh. Horse. Male prostitutes. All yeah. coming together now. Yeah. Get it? Coming together. Oh, sorry. Okay. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> Gotta move on now. <laughs> And uh, one one thing I just want to note up quick before we move along is when we we're, we're in that uh, strip club. Yeah. The one thing you really take notice of is there is a ton of Johnny Walker stuff everywhere. Napkin dispensers, like Johnny Walker stuffs everywhere. You don't see anything else. I don't. And I wonder because that looks like a real place. It is. It that's was probably a real not place. product product place, but that is pretty much probably. Uh, this is the way they. This is the way this place is set up because they got all that shit for free from Johnny Walker, and that's what it was. And it, it was a real place, and it actually still stands today. Oh my god! And uh, it looks exactly the same. <laughs> and you've been inside. <laughs> no, I haven't. But and the Blu-ray, there's a location oh, right, then the and now, site, yeah. and it's right, still right there. Wow, that's that's kind of terrifying. Right? Yeah. And, and one other thing of note, because I actually did try to look at this, and we actually look at the the one time we see. Mitch Gaylord's car, the the convertible bug, it looks like it's uh, the back of it says automatic schlock life on the back of the car. <laughs> I stopped it and tried to read it because I was like, is that what I think it says? And I, that's just I could not make it out any better than that. That's funny. Well, uh, of course, uh, Joanna uh, and entices our buddy Mitch onto the uh, onto the yacht. Uh, proceeds to uh, have sex with him, or at least starts the process in in uh, <laughs> into motion. Uh, but it's not too far along before Mitch's character realizes that something's going on. There's a, a door with a mirror in it, and of course, it's that sleazy guy with only one thumb with a video camera behind a two-way mirror, or yes, yeah, two-way mirror, two-way one mirror, mirror. Yes, yeah. two-way mirror who is videotaping the two of them about to have sex. Mitch discovers this, has a hissy fit. It hits the woman, and he slaps. Yeah, the, he, he, he slaps her down like she, she like. Uh, th- th- that's 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 the moment in the film when I'm like, whoa, that's a little much. And then does which does the thing which I think he's completely justified in doing, and decides to beat the holy living shit out of Mister One Thumb. I mean, just wailing on him. Yeah, you know, one thing I thought about Mr. One Thumb for being a perv is I hope he's left-handed. <laughs> <laughs> Fair point. And he really does have a thumb missing. It's not a prosthetic or anything, so which made me think well, one job this man will never have is starting in the Henry Winkler story. <laughs> <laughs> one thing one thing you do notice is when you see the hand with one thumb, you never actually see the guy's face. So they actually had to pay a guy to be a hand model. That's what I was wondering That's because true. there's a lot of really crafty framing and editing oh, yeah. to make it look right. You do see him holding his hands up, but like his thumb is almost tucked in, so you mm-hmm. don't see it. But see, here's the weird thing: it's not as the only reason to have this character only have a single thumb is so that it's easy to identify his body later on yeah. after after it's been quote unquote burned. Okay, yeah. 
But here's the thing. There are much easier ways cops have of identifying a body. Yep. And you don't need to... Yeah, he was missing a thumb. It's got to be that guy. It's like, guys, that was a lot of work for very little gain as, as far as the story is concerned. I mean, you're really not getting your big bang for your buck to hire a whole complete other guy to be shooting his hand with only one thumb to have that little payoff. So it's it's kind of odd. And I'm going to be honest, I don't know about you guys, but I know a lot of people that are missing thumbs. Uh, I'm dead serious when I say mm-hmm. that. How many are you supposed to have? Two? Two. Okay, I got, I got the right one. It's not you. It's not me. I wasn't <laughs> sure. You could have been talking about me. I wasn't sure. I didn't want to feel you know left out. Strangely, the majority of them are relatives. <laughs> <laughs> Where did they put those thumbs to get, to get, to get them locked off? Or did they, or did they do something? South Georgia is all I got to say. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's probably gunfire related. Anyway. Well, uh, so he, uh, our, our buddy, our, our buddy, our buddy Scott or Mitch, and I'm just going to call him Mitch Gaylord the whole fucking time, beats the hell out of this guy and then gets out of there. Uh, unfortunately, he does a step on some glass and it, <laughs> therefore, leaving, <laughs> leaving his DNA all over this fucking yacht so after he beats the hell out of this guy and gets out of there he grabs what he thinks is the videotape that the guy was shooting of him having you know having his ass bare in front of in front of a video camera oh heaven forbid and then uh, you know they pay you good money for that now guy i do love that he he, the the, the dude with one thumb offers him a uh, offers him a hundred dollars like look i'll pay you a hundred bucks and it's like it's like you gotta you gotta think for just a second there. You gotta like reel it back in. Redhead, willing to have sex with you, and somebody's gonna pay you. It's like what? This is 1989. There's no internet. Where yeah. do you think this is going? Yeah, I mean, only Mister Thumbless is gonna see this thing, and it's not like yeah, we hope he's, he's left-handed. Yeah, it's yeah. Know, I mean, having a date with Rosie Palmer and her four daughters. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> the fifth one's not home anymore. <laughs> But sadly, our boy Mitch is just a little too pissed off to let this kind of sink in. Until I love it that his roommate points this out later on when he goes, "You're gonna make a hundred bucks, have sex with a redhead? What is wrong with you? Why didn't you think this through?" It's a fair point. Yes. Oh, well. By the way, on the boat. Uh, oh wait, I'll save that for later. Skip that. <laughs> well, of course they beat the hell out of each other inside this. Now, one thing that happens is a key that Mister One Thumb is wearing around his neck does get yanked off during this fight and goes out the window and into the ocean. So uh, since that's shown to you in slow motion, you need to pay attention, oh wily viewer. Key point. <laughs> Girl runs off. He runs off try- and, and uh, thinks he has the videotape. Then he gets back, tells his roommate the whole story. And in the ensuing conversation... He discovers that he took the wrong tape. They put the videotape in, realize that what this is, that it's all fucked up, so it doesn't even have any sound. It involves Mr. One Thumb talking to somebody, talking in directly into the camera about this chain around his neck, but they don't know what the hell he's talking about. It's funny how there's like film scratches on it. Yeah. It's like a videotape. <laughs> this, yeah. like, tape's ruined. It looks like it's like an, an old film from the 20s. That's not what a ragged out VHS tape looks like. I'm just going to tell you this. I've got, uh, you, I've got plenty of evidence of exactly what those look like, <laughs> and that ain't it. We all know it. Scott impulsively storms back to the marina, which is where things turn inescapably dark and weird for the rest of this movie. There's a thing you have to think about. He ran all the way back to the boat from his apartment. Yes. With a cut foot. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
How he, stupid he, is that? He took the time only to bandage it, and I think he changed shoes, and that was it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, dude, dude. He's one tough gay lord. <laughs> yes, yes, he is. So he, he he runs back to the to the place, looks around, and discovers that old Johnny One Thumb is a dead man. <laughs> and he's a uh, right. I put that he discovered uh, Johnny Walker, Nilla Wafers, and a corpse. <laughs> <laughs> and I love the moment where he panics and starts using the Johnny Walker to try to clean his blood off off of the the floor of the yacht. And I'm just, I'm just sitting there every time going, "That ain't gonna help you worth a shit, buddy. You need to get the hell out." <laughs> I was thinking you would be better to drink that, and it's not a bad whiskey. So mm-hmm. you're not. Yeah, you know, it's not a cleaning product. What you're looking for is 409. <sighs> so. He's trying to clean this up, and then suddenly we start getting flashes of the little old Chinese lady, and the yacht catches fire. Spontaneous combustion, including exploding in flames, saltine crackers. <laughs> yeah, saltine crackers and blood catching on fire. It's true. Hey, you never you never want to mix those two. It's like Mentos and Diet Coke. <laughs> <laughs> that shit will just blow up on you. That's right. That's why they, that's why you only want to do it with a two liter. Because if you did it with a twenty liter, you die. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Well, okay. So, with this when this fire starts, the person who uh, turns out the person played by Daniel Green, who is the one who it turns out is the murderer was sitting out in his car and just watching this, and when he sees the yacht catch fire, he just thinks, okay, dude found the corpse and lit the yacht on fire, which is the logical thing. And that's one of the nice things about this movie is that there is no point in this movie where that particular character or several characters are ever witnessing something that could be explained by magic, except for Mitch Gaylord's character, who's like too panicked to even think about it. Maybe he just thinks... Maybe yachts just are really flammable. <laughs> Maybe this just occasionally happens. Chinese object you are holding contains the story of your life and the task divine will has entrusted to you. You're not leaving this place until you've told me everything I want to know. Spin three murders on you in a flash. I think I know where it is. What have you got in mind? I'm not sure. Nothing fits. Nothing makes any sense. Joanna? You scream, I swear to God, I'm gonna stick you with this thing, all right? Found it in the gutter. I'm sure you're familiar with AIDS. I only told the police what I saw. Then I'll touch it. It's only a cat. Ah! I'll show you. Well, after the boat catches fire and our buddy Mitch, well, this is something that I found a little unbelievable in, the, in, the, in this film. And I know that you're going to think it's funny that this is the part that I find unbelievable. But the fact that within seconds of this yacht catching on fire, there are cops there. That seemed a little convenient yeah. because they're there to almost see poor old Mitch dive into the ocean off the front of the yacht. I think he would have probably had at least a good half hour to 45 minutes to get away I from the scene so, of this yeah. crime. But, hey, maybe in 89, the cops were, you know, on ocean patrol. Well, I don't there, know. Are, there are several inexplicable moments like that, and we'll get to a few more of them as we go. Where it's like, what? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay on the ride. I was about to say, all, all, all my logic problems with this movie, 
do not involve the weird mysticism or the, the, the strange coincidences. They involve things like that where it's like, would the cops really be there that quick? I don't have a lot of experience with magical boar talismans, but I do with police. And they just aren't that quick. So I'm going to have to agree with that. Well, uh, I don't know. The cops in Miami spice were pretty fast. Miami Spice? Yeah. Of course, in Miami Spice, those cops were top-notch, whether they had underwear on or not. They were on the scene. Yeah. Oh, God. So once he realizes, he runs he runs back, then catches on fire. He doesn't ever find the video cassette. And that's because the actual murderer has run off with the video cassette. Then we get into... Now, I said earlier, let's, let's be clear about one thing. This movie has six different elements that shouldn't fit together. We have the Chinese woman. We have the televangelist played by Donald Pleasance. We have the prostitute character. We have the rickshaw drivers, including our main character. We have the police detectives who now enter the scene and start trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. And then we have the killer, who we only later find out is actually, you know, like a, a cult member directly connected to the televangelist. <laughs> but it doesn't make very clear at first. No, it isn't. It's the mystery as to what the hell he's doing. And then once the cops have an idea of who he is, we learn one strange bit of information that, let's be honest, doesn't make any sense. He's a survivor of the Jonestown Massacre? Yeah, that's Which just a doesn't weird make thing him, to throw out there. Yeah, and it doesn't make him like he's really tough. It just means he's good at hiding. Yes, <laughs> yes. I mean, so are we saying that this is this movie's attempt with one throwaway line, one piece of just needless detail to indicate that this guy is a religious fanatic who can shift religious fanaticism from one religion to another. That's what it boils down to. Yeah. He's very good at pulling the Ric Flair where you throw the drink at the plant. <laughs> yeah, I'll take the Kool-Aid. Uh, there yeah, that was great. <laughs> that was really tasty. <laughs> the plant's done it <laughs> Respect where it's desired and where it's needed. Uh, our professional killer here, played by David Green, or Daniel Green, pardon me, uh, is, uh, is named Francis. That's that's ballsy. I yeah. like that. <laughs> I I like it too. Not gonna lie. It's a good choice. Killer named Francis works for me. Well, so basically, we now have the killer running around, often people trying to find. Well, at first he's not sure, but what he's definitely after is the boar talisman thing that the movie almost might, almost might let you forget about. Because remember. First scene in the movie, it's locked in a fucking train. It's locked in a locker at a at a train station, but it all revolves around that people, because as the movie goes on, we learn that the televangelist and the old Chinese lady once did the nasty, back when they were younger and played by better looking people. Not 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 on the televangelist part though. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was old old Donald Pleasance in a kimono and green face paint <laughs> and, a, and a fright wig I'm telling you now that, that fr- wig and an exploding mask that exploded for no reason at all that was just I really know. good sex <laughs> is, that, is that is that what happens? yeah that was sex and like he just grabbed her boobs and his mask exploded it's like oh <laughs> lady <laughs> well maybe that is what happens who knows that's some that's some sex play I'm not interested in. Explosives near my face. I'll or Donald Pleasant's near your face. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, how would you be aroused by this, lady? This is kind of, no. Yeah. But as the movie progresses, we, 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 we see our, our poor red-headed stripper 
being slowly pulled more into this. We learn that she has a kid, and it's uh, threats to the child that uh, that our killer Francis uses to make her kind of go to the police, confess that she confess that she thinks that uh, our our poor boy Mitch is probably the killer, just because she wants to get him out from wherever he's hiding and kill him. Jeez, we got to find we got to find out. Where this damn jade, uh, and it did look like it was made out of jade, it's not right? Made out of jade. But that—that's the idea. Am I wrong? Is that it was made out of jade? Or, I don't ever think they said jade. They yeah, don't they say didn't. it. That's but you don't make it look like that. You, it, just because it's an idol, you assume like every Asian idol is a. That's jade it. Idol. Yeah. What well, yeah. paint it green? Oh, so I'm <laughs> racist. Is that? Yes. It? Yeah, you're I'm racist. racist. Well, I think racist. everyone knows that. <laughs> <laughs> Right, right now we need the Colonel from Mob podcast to just pop in and go. That's racist. <laughs> <laughs> so what this uh, the murderer is after is the the uh, the boar the boar. What do we even call this thing? Just kind of a uh, the object. Idol. The idol. It's an idol. There you go. Yeah, there we go. I was gonna, I was going. It's not a statue. It's not a sta- statuette. Seems stupid to say. <laughs> so okay. So by the time all of this kicks into high gear, first of all. This is a movie, and let's just talk about this for a second. This is a movie that should be a martial arts movie. Yes, you are 100% yeah, correct. Yeah, and I don't know if there's ever a single kick thrown. No, there isn't. There's no. fist fights. Yeah. There are chases, both in a car and on foot. But nary a, a, a karate haikiba ever seen. And it's really kind of strange. And especially, again, this is where Jim Cotta... Yes. If anyone would know the ancient art of Jim Cotta, it would be Mitch Gaylord. That's <laughs> true. He he would probably be like at least the number two or three practitioner of Jim Cotta. Yeah. One thing about this film that, as I was watching it, that it, it, it moves like just a bullet train. Yeah, it this just, is a fast movie. It, it never yes. stops. And but because they'll take so many leaps, like our uh, Daniel Green is on the watching the videotapes, and he instantly knows. Not only how to find Mitch Gaylord, he knows yep. how to find the, the stripper. Yep. Then his plan is to have the stripper go to the police, so then Mitch Gaylord will come find her. Right. So Mitch Gaylord comes to the strip club and gets in her car and waits for her to get out. Right. And I'm thinking, how did he know how to find her there? Or and which how, car was her? How do you know it was her car? Like, so who's telling these people this that we're not seeing? And then it occurred to me naturally. The script writer tells them. The invisible chimp. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, yes. He's clearly pulling the strings behind this puppet show. And yes. folks, we'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Bloody Pit. I'll be shedding it down now forever. <sighs> You did it. You got him in there. See, I wanted to make the scriptwriter joke. I wanted to make the scriptwriter joke, but no, no, no. Invisible chimp. Fuck you, Hudson. (laughs) My work here is done. This is the point uh, where I got another story to tell. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Jesus. This is a very good story. So, when I was looking at the strip club as the killer was walking into it, or whoever was walking into it, I was like, huh, that looks like an old restaurant or something. I'm like, wait a second. The only strip club I've ever been to in my life was in my hometown of Albany, Georgia. Okay. This strip club, I forgot what the name of it was. They they wiggled their way through some city ordinances to be able to do it. Right. It was in an old Arby's. <laughs> and today, guess what that place is? You know, is? they've got the beats. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, in modern times, guess what that strip club is now? 
At Arby's again. Yes. <laughs> oh my God, are you serious? I'm dead serious. I was just joking. Oh my. No, God. I, I could take you there right now and be like, that's a strip club. The only time I've ever been to a strip club in my life was uh, twice the second week it was open. Never been to a strip club again in my life. Well, I've been to a couple of strip clubs, usually for uh, bachelor parties. Uh, I think the last one I was in was a long time ago, and it was actually a strip club that had been was in a converted church. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. even better than an Arby's. That's a bold move. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was in Nashville, too, so it's one of those things where you're just like, Wow, how did they let this happen? I mean, I'm kind of glad because we are here to worship, but... So did the girls pass a plate for a lap dance? They passed a lot of things. I'm sure some of them were not things that anybody wanted and that penicillin couldn't kill. So uh, the, the funny thing about a strip club is uh, the people that owned that one owned a bunch of places in Florida, and there's a place like about 45 minutes out of town that's called the Neon Cowboys that for first few months they were around they brought in all these girls from out of town to come in and work there and after that it was just the local girls right so that's when it started going downhill (laughs) (laughs) you don't say (laughs) well I mean that's the thing is if you're in a small town that means that everybody knows the strippers they know them Mm. and they know their families and therefore the social pressure to not be a stripper gets higher and higher the longer you do it in a small town oh yeah yeah it's not a good thing I knew two people that strip there Wait, did, did, I wasn't looking at you. Did you say no? When you said no, were you doing air quotes? No, I didn't, I didn't okay. know, I didn't know the, them in a biblical sense. Okay. I didn't know them in a friendly sense. Right, I wasn't looking. I wanted to be Although sure. Apparently, one of them could uh, uh, smoke with a certain place in her body. Ah. so As my dad would say, that old girl's talented now. <laughs> what do you want? I want to ask you a few questions, Joanne. Come on, let's go drive. I've got nothing to say to you. Get out or I'll scream. You scream, I swear to God, I'm going to stick you with this thing, all right? I found it in the gutter. I'm sure you're familiar with AIDS. Let's go drive. Those are cops in that car. They'll follow us. Don't worry about it, all right? Let's just go drive. Come on! You're fucking deaf, let's go! You know, once again, I've only been to a strip club twice in my entire life when I was 19 years old. No one would know that because you keep talking about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I'm 20 now. What day I'll be legal. But uh, these strippers, they don't seem very enthusiastic about their job or either, either that or they're all on downers. Like, they're, they're just kind of like, yeah, I'm here. Yay. Uh-huh. Girls, girls, see, girls. See my breasts? Yeah. You see my breasts? Give me money. Yeah, pour some sugar on me. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh. It's, like, it's like you're playing the, the 45 for pour some sugar on me at 33 speed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> Well, let's back up a little bit to the old Chinese lady. Hold on. Is she getting stoned in this thing? She seems to get stoned a lot. Yeah. I, I, there, there, there's some, I think there are definitely some, some illegal substances being inhaled by this lady at certain points. But the film keeps cutting away to the old Chinese lady at moments of what I guess you would call suspense. Yep. 
And it's plain that she's connected somehow to the mystical events that are going on. So that the movie's making that clear. It's also pretty clear that she has what I can only refer to as a familiar, which is a Siamese cat. And what might be a familiar, but maybe it's just an animal she keeps around to piss off, which is a fucking cobra. <laughs> so they're they're hanging out there. The the Siamese cat starts popping up in different places to kind of point these idiot characters in the direction she wants them to go. And they're all pretty goddamn stupid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, it, and it, like I say, it's pretty clear that the the fire that starts on the yacht and a, and at least one other fire, the fire that chases the assassin out of uh, our buddy Mitch and his roommate's uh, apartment. Another fire starts and there. The cobra. All of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of this stuff seems to definitely be connected to her wanting it to happen. So there's some magic shit going on, and it's really kind of strange. And you keep wondering where's the Jimkata, and it's it's not happening. What we've got like is magic foo instead of kung Fu. It's it's not where you think the movie's going to go, and it's like, is Jack Burton in this movie? Is there any kind of weird mysticism, and is there somebody going to come along and tell us about the three storms? I don't understand anymore what is happening in this plot. I just want to say our hero of the movie makes uh, Jack Burton look like Indiana Jones. <laughs> I just want to say that for the record. That's true. He does yeah. bumble Jack around. Jack Burton would never perform a carjack using a needle. You've heard of AIDS? <laughs> <laughs> I found this needle in the gutter. <laughs> Yes, let's let's talk about. First of all, I'm gonna give the movie credit for one. What thing. a hero! Yes, exactly. I'm gonna give the movie credit for one thing, and then I'm gonna give it two demerits for other things. <laughs> credit one. I cannot tell that there were any animals harmed in the making of this film. Okay, in other words, it's not like watching an Antonio Margariti film where you're just waiting, you're just counting down until an animal gets abused yeah. or killed. On or screen. they drop a horse into a wood chip. Yeah, that, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. that Siamese cat appears to be very well fed because in every scene is licking its chops like they just yeah. got yeah. it some yeah. food. The cat seems happy. The the, the <laughs> they're, they're doing something to kind of irritate the the cobra, but they're not they're not harming it as far as I can tell. And and like the, as far as I can tell, the only people who get harmed in this are the stuntmen. That's about it. So. That's you know, good for them. On the downside are things that are only just, well, let's call them typically 80s. Uh, one, threatening somebody with a needle because it might be infected with AIDS. That's, I'm pretty sure that was a dick move and insulting and offensive in 89. I'm not sure that the shelf life of an AIDS attack was ever anything anybody wanted to just applaud in their hero character. <laughs> yeah. I really liked it when the hero threatened that other person with infecting them with a deadly disease. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that Mitch was... rules. Oh, he's so good. It's like he wielded the whip of AIDS on someone. So that's... And then that's later on, cool. they had sex. Yeah. Yes. Well, yes. or did they, because he still had his pants on. <laughs> <laughs> Which does beg the question... That naked butt we see, was that a stunt butt? It may have been, because yeah, I love the, the sequence where they get in the shower and she, like, obviously she's is naked. She's, she's completely and she, naked, like, yes. sticks her head seductively around the shower curtain and, come on in, whatever she says. So Mitch yeah, She just, says, uh, you better watch out. Don't let me uh, uh, get you a charge with rape. Yeah, which won't happen because he still has his shoes and his pants on in, in the, the shower. shower. <laughs> It's like, guy. It's like, guy. Mitch, are you any good at this? Do you understand how sex works? Because I'm, I'm certainly 
certainly not a master of sex food, <laughs> but I know that it's better without your pants. <laughs> <laughs> there are fewer barriers between you and the object of your lust. Hey guys, we all had to lose our virginity at some time. <laughs> and here, and here we watch Mitch Gaylord in action. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, the pants come off? Oh! Oh! Sorry, baby, I'm leaving the shoes on. <laughs> yeah, of course. I'm leaving my... My Reebok pumps on. (laughs) This is the moment where I'm glad my wife isn't here to interject any comments. (laughs) Yes, yes. The ladies don't need to be here for this. (sighs) Well, so we get all of this stuff coming to a head in multiple different ways. And uh, amazingly enough, and I know this may not sound like I'm... I, this may not sound like it, but somehow, if you haven't seen this movie, you should probably stop listening now because, believe it or not, all of this shit does come together and make some kind of coherent sense. It it shouldn't. <laughs> when you pull it apart and start talking about each individual piece of it, there's no way this movie should make any sense whatsoever, and yet somehow, it does. It's nuts. It's like, let's put it this way. If you realize at a certain point as an adult that if you were to watch Raiders of the Lost Ark and think about it, there's no reason for the main character to be in the story because everything that happens in Raiders of the Lost Ark would happen whether he was there or not. He has zero effect on anything that actually happens in the movie. None. Zero. Same thing is true here. Mitch Gaylord's character could exit the scene and all of this shit would still come to pass. In fact, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, if Indiana Jones wasn't there, the Nazis would have never found the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> They'd still be digging. You showed them how to get it, you dumb stupid fucker. <laughs> so, here's the thing. I love that examining a story like this or Raiders of the Lost Ark allows you to realize something that is ridiculous, which is the story only exists because the story exists. All of these strange elements that feel like they're pulled out of... It's like somebody found a pile of 1930s Pulp Fiction magazines and pulled a random page from every one of them and went, here's our script. Let's roll. Here's our yellow peril part. Here's our here's our Eastern mysticism part. Here's our uh, you know crazed Christian lunatic who thinks he's God. So uh, this, there, there's another Cat Elder quote in a commentary for this movie where she actually says, uh, she makes the opinion that there is a dream logic in a yeah. lot of Mar- Martino films. I agree. Which would make perfect sense for the plot of this movie. Mm-hmm. If you go back and actually think about a lot of uh, uh, Martino movies, that does make a lot of sense. Yeah. You're yeah. not going to go by like reality standards. It's more like you're watching a dream. You're along for the ride. Especially in this movie. <laughs> and, 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 and so many different it, weird things. As long as it makes sense while it's happening, you're fine. It doesn't matter. As long as everything seems to fit together while it's happening, yes. it doesn't matter that the next day you're thinking back on it and going, hey, wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait just a minute. How did he know what car she owns? How does he know where she works? How does he know? You know, all these things that the movie glides right up. Right, pa- right by, right past, and just takes you along with it. It's fine. And you know, you, you only really notice these elements when you watch the movie again. The first time you watch it, you don't notice a lot of it. I mean, you're going to no. notice some of the more common sense ones, but the, you know, I've, I've watched this movie three times since I bought it, and twice in the last week. 
And I've just started noticing, like, you know, these weird things, like you're talking about. I was like, what? That doesn't make any sense. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't make any sense. What the fuck? How did this? Oh, but I should go back and say, remember, this movie ends, and like I said, this is a bit of a spoiler, with our man Mitch happily ensconced in a very family-like situation with this red-headed stripper who's now suddenly dressing in a way that doesn't make her look like a stripper. Pay attention to this. Pay attention to the way you you dress your characters because it will tell you a whole lot about how they want to see those characters with her son. And the movie starts with her, him slapping the shit out of her and threatening her with a dirty needle. But then when she dressed more chase, it becomes a, it makes a face turn. Yep. Yeah. Then they're together. Yep. She's suddenly wearing. She's suddenly wearing. Clo- well. For the majority of the film, she's wearing clothing that is body hugging, that shows off all of her curves, shows off a lot of her legs, and then once that turn happens, once we first see her with her child, from there on, she's dressed in a way she's got long skirt, long flowing, billowing skirts. You can't see her legs. She's got she's not uh, the 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 tops that she's wearing uh, are you know are not hugging her body in any way, yeah. shape, or form. And it's like, ah, we're now super... She's being visually coded as a mother and an upstanding citizen instead of a hooker slash stripper. And that is... I mean, it's just basic... That's costuming 101, but it's one of those things where it's just like, wait a minute, last time we saw her, she was humping him. <laughs> humping his blue jean-clad crotch. <laughs> she was in a fucking shower. She is also referred to as a whore many times in yes. the movies. Yeah. In the movies, excuse me. Um, and to be blunt, she was being paid by old Johnny One Thumb to have sex with this guy on camera. So calling her a hooker is not, you know, is not slighting her in any way. It appears to be a description of what she was doing. So, but I think it, she was in for the ride and the long haul because they were holding her kid hostage the entire time. Yeah. See, that's what the movie doesn't make that clear, does it? No. It does not make that clear. Well, you know it. it uh, see when he shows up at the door of her home, right. which he again the chimp showed her where she lived. But <laughs> yes, obviously you know that wouldn't be correct because because he looks around and says, "Oh, it looks like." Uh, well, yeah, he, he notices he here. notices that she there's a room where a kid would live. It'd be a shame if your kid got hurt or yeah. something like that. But now that I said that, thinking back earlier in the film, she's doing something for the son who has nothing to do with the father. And the father and his his disciple are the ones that are holding the kid hostage. So I'm totally wrong on that. Okay. Well. Yeah. So there's two totally but once again, things, but we don't know when the kid got held hostage mm-hmm. until we see the guy with the milk carton. Which, by yeah. the way, there's actually milkmen in 1989 who deliver milk by the carton, not in a bottle that you come to pick I up. No, that was we, we we both Beth and I were like, wow, in '89 there were milkmen in Miami. Is that real? I mean, it's. It's possible, don't get me wrong. I don't even think the Charles Chips guys were around by that point period of time. <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. Charles Chips, what the hell? They were they were like potato chips that were delivered in a giant tin. They were like, really? Like giant tins, yeah. They used to deliver them in a truck. Oh, wow, that's... To your home? Yeah. God, I would have died. I, mean, I, just I like remember... Too much it, salt. <laughs> I, mean, just... I remember it in the early 80s, and that's all I remember. I don't remember it in the mid-80s or late 80s, but I remember it, and I love those little tins. But... Oh, man. Life is strange. <laughs> <laughs> and to point out how strange it is, the old Chinese lady's name is Madame Luna, and she is an undying sorceress who 
if things go right, is going to suddenly be a Latina. So, yes. Let's keep that in mind. A Latina that can barely speak. <laughs> yeah, let's... Oh, man. Okay. We've talked about how there are good actors in this movie and there are less than good actors in this movie. The... I gotta admit, as ineffectual and pointless as the cop characters and the two detectives who are threaded throughout this whole movie, they're entertaining and the two actors are pretty good. I I like watching them do what they do. They don't irritate me. They, uh, as a matter of fact, a lot of the stuff their investigation does kind of advances things and gets some exposition into your head about the things that are happening, and that's good. But I gotta tell you right now, (laughs) when we make the switch, like I say, this is a spoiler, folks. When we go from old Chinese lady to young, quote-unquote, Chinese lady, not played by a Chinese lady, the, I think Beth put it best, we went from 100% decent actor to 0% decent actor in one magical com- in one magical little effect. It's like a well, I mean, in her older persona, she had a lot more experience. I, yeah, I guess She went I'm back str- to being young when she hadn't had as much experience as an it's, actress. It's Zero speaking. <laughs> in speaking. <laughs> I, I like what Beth said. Did she just let the old woman dub the young woman? That and, would have made and, more sense. And I was like, you know, you're, you're kind of right because <laughs> that would have worked a little bit better. You're probably right. Back in the 70s, they would have done it. Yeah. So yeah, when Mitch finally gets the uh, little porcelain pig back to the sorceress she yes. turns young again before that I don't want to go past this because there's a great dummy gag oh yes when oh, Daniel yes. Green gets hit you by the truck great. yes Daniel Green's uh, ch- character the assassin character checks out in a, hide- in a hideous way he gets hit by a truck and then a cobra slides through his face and out of his eye socket we're not exactly sure where in his face he slides through but it, it comes out of the eye and that's actually a socket. great effect yeah. And completely unnecessary, and didn't need to be in the movie at all. And you gotta, you gotta think that Martino was thinking, "I'm let the, I'm gonna let him do it. If it sucks, it's not going in the movie." And then you see it, and you're like, "That didn't suck." No, that was that was, was great. Right. It's really that was good. A good effect. But I gotta tell you this. Um, here's a weird little, weird little fact, weird little aside about the movie. I, I noticed there was a bumper sticker on the front of that truck that just slaps into that dummy. <laughs> And I backed the film up, and Beth thought I was backing it up just to watch the dummy get hit again. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, I've, I've watched the dummy get hit again. Yes, of course. <laughs> but the reason, the reason I wanted to back it up is I wanted to read what the damn bumper sticker said. And it's, there's a, it says, there's a gator in this Ford. <laughs> I saw that. Okay? <laughs> now, that was, that was funny that. enough. That was funny enough. We had, a, we had a laugh on that. But then I watched through all the credits, and the uh, company that supplied all the trucks that are used in the movie... Is called Gator Trucking, and so I think that that bumper sticker was probably the company's sticker that they would have put on all of their trucks to advertise their company whenever the trucks were being used. Also, it works too. Yeah, what a great exactly. plug for but your it company. Works, but it works either way. I mean, Gator Gator Trucking, Gator would be just something yeah. you'd see around Florida, and course. which would be a great advertisement for your trucking company of showing one of your trucks killing a guy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We mow down dummies like nobody's business. Yeah, they go down hard. <laughs> they go down so hard. So she gets the statue back. Yep. And turns young. Turns young. Laura forgets how to act. So we uh, we forgot to talk about the two scenes with her and Donald Pleasance. Oh, we've, well, we, we, were yeah, we, 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 we mentioned them, yeah. But now where he tries to go and strangle her and get stri- uh, scared off by the smoke machine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
scared off by the. It's a good way to put it. Scared off by the smoke machine. So while uh, Gaylord's going to get the, uh... <laughs> Mitch Gaylord. <laughs> I just love saying Gaylord. Sorry, I'm five years old. It's well. It's also a Nashville. It's also a Nashville joke. So, just, <laughs> so when he's leaving with uh, the redhead and her kid to go find the idol, Pleasance goes to kill the lady. And he's starting to strangle her, and she calls upon her gods to help her, because, you know, obviously the cobra and the cat are no freaking help. They both <laughs> yeah. attack him, and he kicks both of them off. And where the place where the idol is supposed to go, smoke starts billowing out, and Pleasant stops, and he walks over, starts coughing, and he runs away. And it's kind of, we'll go back to wrestling again. It's sort of the um, <laughs> wrestling, the equivalent of, if you're watching wrestling, the bad guy or the, has the good guy down. He's got him pinned. One, two, suddenly music starts playing. So he gets up immediately (laughs) and looks to the entrance ramp instead of staying down there one more second and winning. (laughs) It's like, I'm not worried about winning. I'm worried about why this music is playing. Why are they playing that music? Oh, my gosh. I just think that, like me, Donald Pleasance hates smoke machines. That's true. (laughs) So... We have uh, we have what I I gotta admit I love talking about this final scene. We gotta talk about the final scene where yes. the they've done a pretty good job throughout the movie. And whenever our televangelist character played by Donald Pleasance is uh, giving you know giving one of his sermons, they cut together pretty well uh, the staged shot on the sets footage of him uh, giving his sermon with some real footage of some random televangelist like this huge auditorium filled with uh, filled with people. Uh, being you know being filmed for television, being broadcast as, at the at the time that he's doing the sermon, they they intercut it pretty well. I mean, it's it's, it's not hard to go, yeah, okay, and set and real and set, but it's still well done and it matches pretty well. It's well enough. It's it's done well enough for a film of this type. And it's funny to find out that when we get to that wonderful ending where Donald Pleasance's character gets his comeuppance, and uh, what happens to him is fascinating. But that's not the re- that's not the original way it was going to go. They were go- there was going to be a big wind storm happen that the Chinese woman was going to create inside this big hall where he's giving his sermons, and they realized they couldn't get the fans inside. They were too big, yeah. so they had to concoct a different thing. And what they came up with should have been the original idea in the first place. Yeah, well, yeah how they th- th- it's one of the best endings in film history. I, this is brilliant. And like I say, spoiler spoilers, but there's no way to make this not fun no matter what you hear about it. So here we go. Donald Pleasance is sermonizing as the Chinese woman comes on, takes over the uh, the broadcast screens and starts telling his congregation about his misdeeds and how well, basically just telling them what he's re- telling them what he's really like. And he's trying to uh, offset this, but his his voice keeps stopping in the middle of a sentence and he starts making pig sounds against his will. And Pleasance is so good at this that it really fucking works because it looks like he's both completely shocked at the sounds that are now coming out of his mouth and he's doing it effectively. He's making the he's making the appropriate faces. His shock, the shocked expression in his eyes is perfect. It really works effectively. And it's one of those things where it's like, I never thought I would see Donald Pleasance acting like he's turning into a pig, but here it is. And if the movie sucked in every other way, this scene alone it's great. would put it in the pantheon of, 
if you're a Donald Pleasance fan, you've got to see this. So then he turns to his wife and yep. says, please, she's lying. Tell her the truth. And the wife, as wives do, pulls a gun out of her purse. <laughs> as, as, as wives Just do? out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. And blows him away. <laughs> well, this, ob- this, this wife has obviously been long-suffering <laughs> and, and has taken the opportunity to, you know... It's time to just... I think I'll pack the purse next to the compact today. <laughs> yeah, go ahead and kill this son of a bitch. <laughs> pack the gun in next to the chicklets and the compact and we'll... <laughs> well, if she's the wife of a televangelist in the southeast, True. she's probably packing heat True. to begin with. Because yeah. they're all fucking nuts. So Sorry. he goes down, he's already dead, and then what happens? <laughs> <laughs> then, my friends, he transforms into a pig beast. <laughs> Now, Violently. Vi- yes, it does look like it is painful. And it's not completely convincing. Let's not sell it further than it can be sold. But I don't know. I thought it looked pretty it's good. It's pretty effective. And it's really interesting. Where the pig bursts out of his head. I yes. thought that looked great. Yeah. I mean, that was really well, good. I, I, I thought the hand, the, the hand thing was more effective because because the hooves looked the, the hooves looked realistic. It was, mm-hmm. was kind of weird looking. Yeah. It's was, it was pretty interesting. So... If you had asked me before I ever saw this movie, let's just say if you'd given me three possible endings for this movie and that had been one of them, it's the one I would have hoped it was, but would have bet money that it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Donald Pleasance transforms into a pig. <laughs> yeah, wish. it could be like I fucking wish that happened in a movie. It would be like Gaylord bursts in while the broadcast is going on and tells the truth. Oh, that sounds logical. Yeah, that works. I can that, see that. That could be yeah. or B. Donald Pleasance is shot by his wife and turns into a pig. Yes. After the head of a pig bursts through his face. Well, that's what I want, but no way is that no, going to No way are we going to get that. I mean, that would be great. Uh, that sounds like it's written by a four-year-old. And, yeah, and then he turned into a pig, and the pig into his face. And everybody got free Snickers bars. And then... If you'd have told eighth grade me that there is a movie where a pig bursts through Donald Pleasance's face, I would be like, where can I get this movie? Yeah. I need to see it. I'm the happiest movie. boy in the world. <laughs> Friends, this is a crazy-ass movie. Yes. Uh, the fact that it works so damned effectively is a... First, it's a mystery and a wonder. Let's just be clear. With Serge Martino and the magic that he does. Yeah. yeah. Thank goodness for Cauldron Films because the Blu-ray of this is absolutely incredible. It's a dream. It's a dream. I mean, it. it I, I, again and again, you know, I'll call my wife and I'll you know call her in and say, "Look at this! Look how good this movie looks! It shouldn't look like this!" You know. <laughs> well, that's, that's nice, dear. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. For for Beth, as long as it, can, can we can we see it? Can we yeah. can we hear it and see it? We're good as far as she's concerned, right? But then we get to the I get to this and I keep while listening to uh, to Cat and Sam talking about this on the commentary track and reading some reviews. It's never looked as good as it looks on this Blu-ray. As a matter of oh, fact, yeah. people who are fans of this movie are blown away by how good it looks on this disc. Over and over again, they say the same thing, which is, I've watched this movie probably you know three or four times in my life, and it's always looked like shit. And I just thought it looked like shit. And it was just because there's never been a good representation of it on VHS or any other format. And so this is another example for me of a movie that's reputation, good or bad, rests on poor presentation at least to some percentage. And so it's why I always say I want to see every film ever made in as good a presentation as possible so that we're judging the movie instead of a shitty presentation of the movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And 
this is a movie that clearly, although we, the first time we ever saw it, we're seeing it in as good a way as it's ever been seen. So we're lucky in that respect. We didn't, you know, we didn't have the opportunity to see it in a bad way and maybe come away not even interested in seeing it, you know, cleaned up. If you know, if your your response to it was terrible in the past, you might not have ever, you might not have even been, even been interested in seeing a better looking print of it. We didn't have that experience. We got lucky. This is one we got to see pristine from Jump Street. But I can only imagine people who actually loved the movie finally getting to see it like this. Just listening to just listening to, to Cat and Sam on the commentary track where they're just marveling at the detail. It's like the the little thing the things that are in certain scenes where they're they're honestly pointing out. It's like I never knew what that was before. And now yeah. you can see what that detail is. And they're talking about the things that the weird things that are hanging on the walls in the apartments, like the drawing of lemons. They're like, what the hell is that there for? Like, Why or, is that there? Or the yeah. big drawing behind the couch of the rickshaw driver. Right, right. And you can make out all the beer bottles. <laughs> and and, the, <laughs> and, and I wrote them down. Beer bottles, well, you well, say? Well, 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 the beer bottles, but tacked to the wall is a pizza box. It's like, <laughs> a sir pizza pizza yeah, box. Yeah, a sir pizza pizza Randomly. box. It's like, what in hell's name? That was some good pizza. <laughs> I guess it must have been. They hung it all. <laughs> So, I mean, John Karabi likes to hang out at Sir Pizza, from what I understand. <laughs> so, here's a question for you, for each of you. I really enjoy this movie. I enjoyed it way more than I thought I would. I've enjoyed it a little bit more each time I've watched it, which is not always necessarily true. This reignites my excitement for this period of filmmaking from Italian filmmakers. This late 80s, early 90s period is a period that I've shied away from in general, and even the ones that I've watched have never really impressed me much. And now I realize there are real gems. And it will be easier to find these gems because they were making few of these movies at the time. Yeah. So it's, it's possible to like actually compile a list of movies made by crazed Italian lunatics who were somehow getting financing to make movies from 80, let's call it 85, 86 to like 90, 93, that period, and actually see them and actually try to find the good ones. Cruel Jaws came out in 92, right? I can't even remember. I think so. It was, it was an early 90s film, so that might be like on the very tail end of that. Yeah. Some people said that this was, this movie itself was shot like at the peak of that. It was probably like maybe the swan song for that those kind of productions, but it seems like it was still going. Oh, Cruel Jaws early 90s, is actually yeah. a test because of that. You so. talk about a peak of something, Cruel Jaws is it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How in the hell are they still making Jaws ripoffs in the 1990s? When you do them that well, that's ah, why. Oh, there you go. Well, there when you your go. name is Joe D'Amato. Well, there is that as well. And here's the weird part. The Joe D'Amato films that I've enjoyed the most have been the weirder, trippier, fucked up things that he made in the late 80s that I expected zero from. Yeah, that I had not I heard any, that. that I had not heard anything about. I had not heard anybody championing. There weren't lines of people around the block going, "Oh, you've got to see this." It's those that I didn't know anything about. And I start watching, and I'm like, "Well, this is a batshit crazy movie," but I'm enjoying it. Exactly. So, what do y'all think about this movie? Well, before we think about, I want to know what Bobby thinks oh, wow. about all the beer in this movie. Oh, oh yeah. There's a lot of beer. Well, I, I saw okay. I saw a Corona bottle because the dude was drinking a Corona at one point. So there's that. So you have a lot of Johnny Walker in this movie. That's Lots. The only, that's the only liquor you see. But John, uh, Johnny Walker uses a cleaning fluid as well. Uh, here is a. I have to look at two different pages. Uh, here's a list of beers that you saw, mostly in the uh, bachelor pad apartment. Yep. Corona and Michelob. Yeah. Heineken, Coors, Extra Gold. 
The Coors Extra Gold can is dead center in a particular shot. Yeah. Miller Genuine Draft. Oh my God. And then. Do they still make Miller Genuine Draft? Actually, they do. That's and terrifying. I've had it a couple of times. That's it's terrifying. Not very good. <laughs> no, it's it's it might be a good cleaning fluid too. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I, I I know I've seen Michelob and Bush. I just can't find. Yeah, there it is. And uh, and just randomly, you see some Newcastle and. Uh, can, bottles and bud cans. So it's probably whatever the crew was drinking. <laughs> yes. Here you go. Here you go. Just put it in the shot. It's fine. You we got to make this look like a bachelor pad. All this cheap American beer and then just Newcastle for no reason at all. And Johnny Walker. Yeah, I was about to say a Newcastle. That's that's out of the ordinary for that kind for that group of beers. That's true. Yeah. The one thing they would not put in this, since they want to make sure that we all know it's in America, there's not a J and B bottle in sight. Which is a sad thing. But we do have Johnny Walker, which is a good whiskey. So, so folks, uh, this is not my favorite Sergio Martino film. Don't get me wrong, but I really do enjoy this movie. Uh, on the one to ten scale, it's like a six or a seven. It's like crept up into the seven category for me, which is crazy because it, like I say, the more you examine the movie, the crazier it is, and the more the more you realize that it doesn't make as much sense as it probably should. But what do you guys think about it? I would probably go with a 7, but if you caught me in the right mood, I'd give this thing about a 12. <laughs> <laughs> How much Johnny Walker are we talking about? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go with a 7. It's a fun party movie. I mean, you can watch it with friends and oh, yeah. have, have a blast with oh, it. Yeah. It is batshit crazy, which is what I appreciate about it. I just like these movies that just are throwing things at the wall, seeing what's going to stick. And it works. Yeah. You're just having fun all the way through the movie. I mean, there's no way you, you can't watch this movie and not have fun. I agree. I agree. And I, what's weird is uh, there's a category known as the uh, the hangover movie. Mm. In other words, the movie that you could just have playing while you're on the couch trying to recover for, after a night of, uh, of drinking way too much. And you're drifting in and out of consciousness. And there's nothing in this movie that you just drift out for 10 minutes and drift back in that you couldn't go, yeah, it's the same movie. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, yeah. She's talking to the Cobra again. Okay, we're good. We're good. <laughs> well, all right. So, guys, I want to thank you once again for uh, first suggesting that we talk about this movie because I, I, I wouldn't probably podcast about this movie simply because I'm kind of flabbergasted at the the period of time. And I, I now that we have talked about this at length, that does make me realize that I'd kind of like to take a walk through a lot more of these movies and now oh, that definitely. a lot of them a lot of them are available uh, on Blu-ray for mm-hmm. God's sake I mean there are a couple of double features of some of those weird ass uh, I think they're Filmarage I think that was the, the the movie company that produced like things like uh, what is it oh, uh, Ghost House oh yeah, like that. yeah, all yeah. That, all I those, Filmarage yeah all that stuff so there's a lot of this stuff from the late 80s early 90s now uh, that I want to delve into, and uh, sounds like I got two guys here oh, who yeah. are uh, oh, yeah, who are crazy enough to actually want to trail along with me on this. Yeah, and I've actually got the next movie we cover in mind. If oh, what? oh, well, we got something else with uh, Magic and Pigs, Evil Speak. <laughs> oh, okay. well, it is from the eighties. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, you know what? I'm willing to cover Evil Speak. Yes. yes. Okay, yeah, I yeah. thought that would go over. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I own the Blu-ray. That's for sure. As do I. And, and it's, I do not, but I can work on that. I was about to say, I know, <laughs> I know for sure that you're about to pick up your phone. So. Um, I just wanted to say real quickly, uh, Spring Break Forever is back up and running. Yes. Slowly but surely, we're about to put out the first super show. I just got to finish editing down a, 
uh, interview. Um, in the future, I do plan on having Mr. Hudson uh, to talk about some party films. I'm up. Maybe maybe some films that uh, um, this guy over here wouldn't want to cover. <laughs> <laughs> there are no such films like that. There are lots of them. Uh, I think right. that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think the first one we're going to talk about uh, in a segment on the show, probably maybe in episode two, would be Surf 2, mm-hmm. which I'm oh, very wow. excited to cover. Um, but, uh, you know, I've got the band back together, the original guys. Um, the first episode, we're going to have an interview with um, Sam from Brett Farrar, who we do the theme song with, and we uh, talked to Ryan Sweeney about uh, his uh, Sweet Time comp and what he's been doing for the past couple of years. It should be really fun. Um, actually, all the segments I did, I thought I was going to need a whole bunch of stuff, but no, nah, I think I've got it. Built. I think I've got it all together because we talk a lot. I think I've had to edit down like four <laughs> hours worth of like material. I would not know anything about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, just don't cut out all my funny parts today. <laughs> I it's it's honestly it's 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 a pig hunt for truffles trying to find those funny parts. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Hudson, Mr. Hazard, thank you very much. Hey, thanks for having me as always. It's always a pleasure to be on here. Yeah, I love yeah. it. I love being your sweet little truffle ride. <laughs> Here's what some people are saying about the Projection Booth podcast. The Projection Booth is single-handedly the greatest film podcast you could ever listen to or could possibly want. Top-notch. Five stars. This has quickly become one of my favorite film-related podcasts. Always interesting. A completely unpretentious yet fully comprehensive look at films from all genres. The Projection Booth Podcast, with new episodes available every week at projectionboothpodcast.com. Just Rod here, popping in at the end again to thank you for listening to this rather ramshackle and completely lunatic episode of the podcast. As we discussed... American Rickshaw. Yes, indeed. Quite the uh, quite the fun little film, and we do highly recommend it, as you can tell. If you've got any comments, questions, or suggestions, remember the email address for the show is thebloodypit at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you've got any suggestions for weird movies from the late 80s, early 90s, that we should, uh, we should consider for podcasting in the future... Um, just remember that you know somehow we've got to get through Evil Speak first. Speaking of strange pig movies, anyway, we've got uh, a lot of different things on tap very soon. Hope you've enjoyed what you've heard this time out, and uh, all I can say is more to come. Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you again soon.
make a sound Cause you're forever in the ground Day is set. 